clapping for him or what's? Uh, <laughs> Don't worry. We'll, we have not had any uh, episodes of botulism at church picnics in the past, so uh, you'll be safe to, to come. Uh, anyway, too far, I guess. Um, well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you here this morning. Um, as we start here, I just want to ask how many of you would say that you are someone who really loves and enjoys art? Either like you personally enjoy creating art or you enjoy when other people do. Anybody? All right. Well, that, that's actually a lot of you. Um, I, I would say for me, I'm more on the side of enjoying other people's art because personally, uh, I'm pretty terrible at creating uh, my own. Um, when Chris showed that uh, brain illustration last week, I'm definitely a little locked in on the I'm left brain dominant. There's not a lot of creative juices flowing through here. Um, but I, I still enjoy other people. Um, if I'm being transparent, I guess, um, my experience of art class consisted of me cutting myself with an X-Acto knife um, in Miss Yo's seventh grade art class. Um, and, and, and then I proceeded to almost black out as I saw the blood drip from my finger. Um, I actually stood up and, and I was like, I cut myself. I, I can't see. I can't see because I was starting to, to go out. Um, because in seventh grade, that's what you want to be known as, as the guy who blacked out in art class. Um, if that wasn't bad enough, I fully fainted and passed out a few years later in high school while giving blood during a blood drive. So um, I guess all that to say, uh, I stink at creating art. I usually end up hurt when I try to do it. Um, I guess the second point is, is that clearly I don't do well seeing my own blood. And so um, if for some reason I somehow crazily cut myself up here, someone else is going to have to uh, give some sort of message this morning. Um, but one of the things that, as I thought about it, that I, I love and can appreciate about art is, is seeing the uh, various stages that a piece of art goes through on its way to completion. And what I mean by that is that the artist starts with a vision of what it is that they're trying to create what the end goal or the end product will look like, but in order to get to that place, the, the, the piece goes through quite a few different stages. And each stage in the process gets you a little bit closer to that final piece. Uh, for example, as a kid, I loved watching Bob Ross paint on uh, Sunday or Saturday mornings on PBS. Uh, any Bob Ross fans out there? Anybody heard of this guy? He's awesome. Um, but one of the things that I, I loved about Bob Ross, besides... Uh, all of his ridiculous quotes about happy little trees or happy little clouds or um, even the way that he beat the devil out of the brush when he would clean it. Um, is I, I, in terms of the way that he painted, I loved the way that as he went along, his paintings became progressively more clearer and more realistic the longer that he painted. And what I mean by that is that when he would start out painting, you would uh, be thinking to yourself, I wonder what in the world is he going to create today? And he would usually start out with a blank canvas and paint maybe one solid color across the whole thing, and it would be all streaked, and, and you'd be thinking, well, how, what is he going to make out of this? And then he would maybe switch to a different color and start concentrating on this side and then move over here. And, and, and before long, this beautiful picture would just come to life. And, and again, it was, it was just amazing to watch him do it, that in the, the course of an episode, he could start with nothing, and then he would just, you know... Go through it. And so you would get up and go get something from the kitchen, and you would come back, and the picture would just, again, it were, there were almost like layers of, of uh, paint on top of each other that would create these beautiful pictures. And as I thought about that, I thought, uh, I just love the way that his painting sort of unfolded. And again, the way that they became clearer and more beautiful the longer that he went. And in the same way, the author of the Gospel of Luke, this book that we have been studying for the last several months, he is slowly, verse by verse, 
and story by story unfolding and painting for us a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And so today, as we start chapter 7, many commentators have pointed out that this chapter is a real foundational one in terms of painting and describing who Jesus is and what he is like. And, and that's even why in the middle of the chapter you have this uh, story where John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to go ask Jesus about his identity, to ask whether or not he is, in fact, the Messiah, and, and, and if he is the one that is to come. And we'll get into that story next week. But again, this chapter is real foundational in terms of laying out who Jesus is. And what we're going to see today is we're going to look at two different stories in the life and ministry of Jesus. And through both of them, we're going to see that Luke is adding some new layers. He's adding some new images and details into this painting of who Christ is. And the reason I say that is because what we're going to see today is these two first-time experiences in the life of Christ. In the first story, we're going to see Jesus' first interaction with a Gentile, uh, as recorded in the book of Luke. And then in the second story, we're going to see Jesus' first interaction in confronting death. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 7. Um, if you need to borrow a, a Bible, uh, you can use one of our pew Bibles. And uh, the passage is found on page 863. Uh, but before we start reading, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we uh, are so thankful we can gather this morning in your name. So thankful we can spend a few moments just looking into your scriptures. And so, Lord, I just ask that you'd send the Holy Spirit to come to illuminate our minds. Pray that he would uh, just create this. Uh, as Luke is describing who Jesus is, I pray that the Holy Spirit would make uh, him come alive in our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, starting in Luke chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Okay, so verse 1 here serves as a transition statement. It's a way of Luke letting us know that he is moving on in the story. And if you remember to, to last week, previous to this, Luke uh, records that Jesus was uh, giving his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. But now he's telling us that uh, after doing that, after teaching, Jesus went back to the city of Capernaum. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, the city of Capernaum was a, a kind of home base, or, or I guess you could say an adopted hometown of Jesus. And part of the reason for that was because that's where some of his main disciples were from. Uh, the other reason is, as we saw uh, about a month ago, that his actual hometown, Nazareth, had rejected him, had even tried to kill him. And so because of that, Capernaum is now his home base, and so he's coming back to the, to the city. Luke tells us there in verse 2 that there was a centurion in the city and that this particular, uh, this particular man had a servant who was very sick and was even at the point of death. Uh, in Matthew's account of this story, it tells us there that the servant was paralyzed and was suffering greatly. Now Luke also tells us here that the centurion highly valued his servant. Or in other words, he really cared about him which is, as we'll see in a moment, why he goes out of his way to ask Jesus for help. And believe it or not, that was actually pretty rare uh, in that time period to, uh, to, to feel that way about a servant. In fact, most slaves and servants were regarded during this time as disposable. They were seen as property. 
I mean, per Roman law, you could actually uh, kill one of your slaves or your servants without any ramifications. And yet here, what we read is that this man, this centurion, highly valued his servant. Some translations even say that, that the servant was very dear to him. And so apparently, unlike many others of his day, the centurion saw his servant as a human who needed help, not as a tool that could be discarded and replaced with a new one. And so what that shows us is that at least at some level, this man is a man of character. He's a man who treats others with respect and dignity. And so let's keep reading and see what else we learn about him. Look at verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And so the centurion evidently had heard about Jesus and about the miracles that he was performing. And so because of that, when he found out that Jesus was coming back into town, he asked some of the Jewish elders to go represent him and to ask Jesus to come to his house in order to heal his servant. Now, a couple of interesting things to note here about uh, this man is that, uh, number one, you know, Luke tells us here that he is a centurion, which means that he was a Roman commander who uh, would have typically oversaw around 100 soldiers or so, which meant that this was a man of power. He was a man of authority. As well, because uh, we know that he was a Roman commander, we also know that he was a Gentile and not a Jew, and so when you take those two things together, that here is this Gentile, but he's also a Roman soldier, a Roman commander. By all accounts, this man should have been hated by and despised uh, by the Jews and is seen as one of their enemies. And yet what we just saw is that that's not the case. At least that's not the case with this particular Roman centurion. You see, the reality was is that the Romans were incredibly cruel and they ruled the various nations that they had conquered and occupied with an iron fist. But what we see is that at least in some ways, this Roman centurion was different. He was generous. He was kind. Now, we don't know exactly why he was that way. Uh, it's possible that he was uh, a, a Jewish proselyte, meaning that he had converted to Judaism. But most likely, that's not the case. Most likely, he's what the Bible refers to sometimes as a, a God-fearer, which would have been a, a Gentile who didn't fully embrace uh, Israel's God or their religion, but who did, however, have a, a respect and an honor for Judaism and for the God that they worshipped. And so because of that, and because of his incredible generosity in building their synagogue, these Jewish elders come to Jesus and they relay the centurion's request. This request that Jesus comes to his house and heals his servant. But then we see there in verse 4 that they, they not only uh, relay the request, but they actually add to it their own opinion. They tell Jesus, they say, you should do this for him. He's worthy to have you do this to help him because he loves our nation and because he built our synagogue. And so in other words, they didn't just deliver the message. They actually went to bat for this guy. I mean, it even says in the text there that, that, that they pled earnestly to Jesus on his behalf. And so how does Jesus respond to this request? Well, look at verse 6. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. 
For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so Jesus, in response to this man's request, and in response to the Jewish elders' appeal, he begins to go with them. He begins to head towards the centurion's house. And that's actually really shocking because to do so, to go to this Gentile's house would have made Jesus unclean. And yet what we see is that he's willing to do that. He's willing to risk becoming unclean in order to help someone in need. And so on the way to to head to this Gentile, this Roman uh, centurion's house, uh, the the centurion sends another group of people to, to meet Jesus along the way. But this group has a slightly different message from him. This time they report that the centurion said, Lord, which is interesting that he calls Jesus his Lord, but he, he basically says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Don't come to my house because I, I realize how unworthy I am to have you in my home. And because I realized how unworthy I was, I didn't even presume to come to you myself. That's why I have sent these various groups to you. And so, Lord, I, I, I'm not worthy to have you come, but, but Lord, just say the word. If you just say the word, I know that my servant will be healed. And then in verse 8, he gives kind of the rationale as to why he thinks that Jesus is able to do this. He basically says, look, Lord, I I know that uh, you are in a place of authority, and, and I too understand how authority works. I tell my men to go, and they go, and to do this, and they do it. And so basically what he's acknowledging there is that he understands that Jesus has authority. And because Jesus has authority, he believes that all Jesus has to do is to say the word, and his servant will be healed. Now, that's amazing. And that's amazing because primarily during this time period, it was very common to believe that miracles and that healings could only take place uh, through direct contact, through laying on of hands or something like that. And yet here we have this man saying, no. He's saying, I understand how authority works. I know that all Jesus has to do is to issue a command of healing, and it will be done. And so in light of this new message, this new information from the centurion, how does Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And so Jesus responds here by marveling at this man's message. He was apparently so moved uh, emotionally that it actually caused him to turn to his disciples and to turn to the crowd and say, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And what Jesus means by that is that uh, here is this man who's not even a part of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. He's an outsider. He's a Gentile. And yeah, what Jesus is saying is that this man exhibits more faith, more trust in me than anyone else that I've met in Israel. And so in response to that faith, verse 10 tells us that when the messengers went back to the centurion's house, they found the servant healed. You see, what we see is that Jesus honors this man's faith by granting him the request. And again, the thing that's uh, about this story that's so amazing is that it's Jesus interacting with a Gentile. Again, this is the first interaction with a non-Jew that Luke records in his gospel. However, though, this man isn't just some ordinary rank and file Gentile. No, he's actually a Roman commander. 
Again, I want you to try to wrap your mind around that. This man would have represented an evil empire. He would have been the the hand and the fist of an evil ruler. And yet, in response to his humility and to his faith, Jesus blesses him. Jesus answers his request that his servant be healed. You see, I think one of the things that's so beautiful about this story is the contrasting views of this man's worthiness. You see, the Jewish elders told Jesus that the centurion was worthy of Jesus coming to help him. And yet the centurion's own estimation of himself is that he's completely unworthy of having Jesus come. And yet just because he's unworthy, he doesn't allow that to impact his faith and his trust in Jesus' goodness uh, and in Jesus' ability to perform this miracle. Again, the, the, the elders said that the centurion was worthy of this healing because of his good works. And they commended him for them. But Jesus says this man is worthy not because of his good works, but because of his faith and his trust in him. See, Jesus commends him not because he built the synagogue, but because of his faith and his trust in Jesus. One commentator in talking about the centurion said it this way. He said he asks for what he knows he doesn't deserve and faithfully expects to get it anyway. He seems to intuitively understand that although he has a right to expect nothing from Jesus, still Jesus is willing to give him everything. You see, what this story illustrates is that there is a a, a desperation. There's a dependency on Jesus from the centurion. You see, he trusts and and understands that not only is Jesus powerful, not only does Jesus' words carry authority, but he also trusts that Jesus is good. That he's kind. That Jesus longs to bless and to heal people. And really at the end of the day, that's what faith looks like. It looks like you and I being desperate and dependent. It looks like you and I believing and trusting in Jesus' goodness and his power. It looks like us believing that he can do what he says he can do and that he, that he is who he says that he is. And clearly the centurion gets that. He understands what faith looks like. You see, he had the kind of faith that we talked about a few weeks ago that, that caused him to move uh, into action. The kind of faith that, that, that allowed him to step out, that, that caused him to take a risk. And in doing so, in stepping out and taking that risk, he was rewarded with one of the most rare and unique privileges that we see in the scriptures. And that is that he was praised and commended by Jesus. You see, when you read through the Gospels, one of the things you see is that Jesus was rarely amazed or in awe of anybody. In fact, when it says that he was amazed or in awe, it was almost always because of something bad. It was because of him being in awe at someone's lack of faith and trust in him. But what we see here with this story is the opposite of that. Jesus was blown away by this man's faith in him, and so he commends him and praises him for that. And so that's the first story we see here. Let's Move on, though, to the second one and pick things up in verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And so here's Jesus. This is a different day. He's on his way into a different city. It tells us there in verse 1 that his disciples are with him along with a very large crowd. And they're on their way. They're entering the city through the gate. But as they're going, another large crowd is leaving. 
And the reason that the large crowd is leaving is because they're on their way to bury someone who had just died. And we learn in verse 2 that the person who had died was an only son of a widow. And so here is this lady. She has lost not only her husband, but now she has lost her son, her only son. And as you try to imagine that and put yourself in her shoes, you could imagine that this is a very bitter and tragic loss for her. I mean, during this time period, your husband, uh, if you lost your husband and your only son, uh, that would be the equivalent of you and I losing our pension, our 401k, our Social Security, and Medicare all in the same day. This would have been, again, extremely tragic. Her family, her uh, husband and her son would have been her only means of support, but now all of that is gone. She almost certainly would be facing a life of poverty from here on out. She would have been entirely dependent upon uh, the kindness and charity of others. And so again, this is a, just a really devastating and tragic scene. But another aspect of it that would have added to the bitterness and the tragedy is that during this time period and in this culture, it was commonly believed that a premature death in the family was a kind of punishment or judgment for sin. And so most likely there would have been this added shame to all of this. I mean, here's this lady. She's already lost her husband. And now she has lost her only son. And so obviously, according to others, they, they would have saw this as a sign of God's judgment on her. They would have maybe had thoughts like, wow, this, this lady must be really blowing it or really sinful in some way because God's clearly punishing her. Again, that's the way that they would have thought about it. And so as you try to think about this and as you try to picture this scene and what this would have looked like, as you try to imagine the grief and the shame and the sense of hopelessness that this poor widow must have been feeling in this moment. And yet here we have Jesus. And he's about to run into this woman and meet her face to face. And so let's see what happens. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bear and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And so again, here is Jesus. He's entering the city. And as he is, he encounters a funeral procession. And he sees this poor widow crying. And it says there in verse 3, when he saw her, he said to her, do not weep. And then he goes on and he touches the bear, or in other words, that would have been like a wooden stretcher that they would have carried the dead man's body on, and he touches it. It's just like going to the centurion's house. That, too, would have made him unclean according to the law, but he doesn't care. He does it anyway. It says that the men carrying the body stopped, and then Jesus looks at the young man, and he speaks to him, and he says, Arise. And at that command, the young man sits up and begins to talk. And I don't know about you, but I'm really frustrated that Luke doesn't tell us what he says. You know, I'm sure it was something like, whoa, I can't, you know, what happened? And he's probably like, I'm going to have to write a book about this or make a movie and make some money about my experience of coming back to life. Uh, just kidding. But I am, I, I do wish he would have recorded what he said. I think the point, though, is just the fact that he's speaking is proof that the man has come back to life. And so how does the crowd respond to this amazing miracle? Well, look at verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole, uh, the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. 
And so we see the crowd here respond with both fear and awe, and they glorify God. And they conclude that because of this, that Jesus must be a great prophet, that through him God is visiting his people. Now the reason that they conclude that Jesus must be a great prophet is because the only other time something like this has happened in Israel's history was when both Elijah and Elisha raised someone uh, back from the dead back in the Old Testament. And specifically in Elijah's case, his too was the only son of a widow. In fact, if you look at that story uh, side by side with this story here, there's quite a few parallels. And actually, if you look at Elijah's story in 1 Kings 17, what you see there is that in order for Elijah to raise the boy from the dead, he has to do all kinds of stuff. He prays, he cries out to God, he, he complains to God like, why are you bringing all of this trouble on the widow? It says that he lays on top of the boy three different times and prays. And then, and, you know, after all of that, finally the boy comes back to life. And yet in contrast, all Jesus does is he walks up to the dead boy. He walks up to the stretcher and he says, young man, arise. And so, yes, the crowd in Nain is right. There is a great prophet. A great prophet has risen among him, but this prophet is far greater than Elisha. I think it's also interesting that they make this statement here that, that they conclude that God is visiting his people because that statement is way truer than they probably realize. You see, they think that Jesus is a, a prophet like Elijah and Elisha who was being used by God. But as you and I know, Jesus is much more than that. He's not just a prophet being used by God. He is God. Like in Jesus Christ, God actually and physically came down and visited his people. That's why when we look at the incarnation the, during Christmas time, that word Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus, God has visited his people. And so, again, whether or not they realize that that's exactly what has happened. A great prophet has come and God has actually visited his people. Now, as we step back from these two stories, what is it that they teach us collectively about Jesus? You see, I started the message by saying that, that this chapter was a foundational one in terms of Luke describing for us who Jesus is. Again, like a Bob Ross painting, he is adding new layers and new images to his portrait of Christ. And the two new layers or the two uh, new images that we saw this morning is that, number one, Jesus has no problem extending his grace and his mercy to the Gentiles, as we saw with the centurion. So that's one new added layer to the life of Christ. Another new layer that we see is that Jesus' authority and his power, that it extends beyond just his ability to heal or to drive out demons, but, but that actually his power and his authority extends to the point of revoking death's claims on people. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this is Luke's first uh, uh, account of Jesus' interaction where he confronts death. And what we see here is that Jesus has, in fact, the power and the authority over it. And so those are the two new layers that uh, Luke paints for us in this painting of Christ. But, but the other layer, the other aspect that, that I think Luke really draws out in these stories, it's one that he's been heading at all along in previous stories, but I, I think he makes it really explicitly clear here, particularly in the story with the widow. It's this aspect it's this side of Jesus that when you and I think about him, when we think about what makes him so beautiful and so captivating and worthy of our affection and our worship, it's this aspect and this side of him, uh, it's his compassion. You see, one of the things that's so amazing about the story with the widow 
and is in some ways unique, is that if you pay attention there, you see that nobody asked Jesus to do this. I mean, there was no prayer. It's not like the widow, you know, in desperation fell at Jesus' knees begging him to raise her son. None of that happens. No, what happens is that instead, what we see is that Jesus himself takes the initiative to perform this incredible miracle. And the reason that he does it is, is not because he wants to show off or that he wants to prove something to the crowd, but rather he does it simply because of his compassion. You see, we saw in the first story that Jesus healed the servant in response to the centurion's faith and in response to his compassion. But what we see here with this story is that Jesus raises the dead man not because of someone else's faith or someone else's compassion, but because of his own. You see, I think one of the most beautiful phrases in the story with the widow is verse 13, which says, when, he, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. You see, the reason I think that phrase is so precious and is so beautiful is because what it means is that Jesus sees people. He notices them. You see, Jesus wasn't afraid to look hurting people in the eye. He wasn't afraid to step into someone else's pain. He didn't run away from hard situations. No, you see, his compassion for humanity trumped his desire for comfort. Jesus saw people. He noticed their need and their pain. And he was even willing to make himself unclean in order to meet someone else's need. You see, we saw two weeks ago that Jesus was willing to break the Sabbath in order to meet a need. And before that, we saw that he was willing to make him un himself unclean by touching a leper. Now, the reason that Jesus did those things is not because he disrespected or disregarded the law, but rather he did them because he obeyed a higher law, a law which says that love and compassion demand that you help someone and meet their needs when you have the ability to do so. You see, one of the reasons that you and I can know and trust that Jesus was God and that he is God is because of his life and his character. His life and his character reflect, and they look so much like how God was described back in the Old Testament. You see, in Hebrews 1, it tells us that Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so what does the Old Testament tell us about the nature of God? Well, there are, you know, tons and tons of verses that describe the nature of God. There's, there's dozens that talk about his compassion, but let me just share with you a few of them. In Exodus 33, uh, which I think is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And Yahweh tells him that, that he'll do that, that he'll let his glory pass by him, and that in doing so, he'll proclaim his name. And in chapter 33, when, when God is telling him he'll do this and, 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 and it says he'll uh, declare his name, it says this in verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord or, or Yahweh, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then in the next chapter, chapter 34, Yahweh actually does this. He passes by Moses. He shows him his glory. And he, as he does it, he proclaims his name to him. And in Exodus 34, 6, it says this. 
And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Psalm 86, 15 says something very similar. It says, but you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness. Psalm 103, 13 says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Psalm 116, 5 says, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Isaiah 49, 13 says, Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice. O earth, break into joyful song, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Now again, these are just a few of, again, dozens if not hundreds of verses that talk about Yahweh's, about God's compassion. We see that even the very name Yahweh has tied into it and carries with it this attribute of compassion. And what we see when we read the Old Testament is that when others talk about and describe God, and when God talks about himself, compassion is again tied into his very nature. And so if that's true about God, and that's what we read about, and, and if Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact imprint, the, the exact imprint of his nature then it would follow that you and I would expect to see Jesus display this attribute in his life. And so the question is, do we? Well, yes, absolutely. When you study the life of Christ, you see that all throughout his life, he had compassion for those who were broken and who were hurting. And so again, what we see when we read the scriptures is that our God is a God of compassion. He revealed and described himself that way in the Old Testament. And in Jesus Christ, he lived that out. He showed that to us. But I want to ask you a question. How many of you know that God is still in the business of showing compassion to humanity? You see, what I mean by that is that when Jesus ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago, God's compassion for humanity didn't ascend with him. In other words, what I mean is that his compassion didn't stop. It's not like he thought to himself, "Oh, well, you know, those three years of when Jesus lived on earth, that was enough. I was able to really do a lot of good. I was really able to show humanity a lot of compassion. But I guess now that he's ascended into heaven, all that's over. No, that's not what happened. Instead, what happened is that you and I, us as followers of Jesus, we became God's plan for displaying his compassion to the world. You see, that's why Jesus in the book of John would say these crazy statements like, it's better that I go. It's better that I leave that way that the Holy Spirit can come. You see, what I'm getting at is that God the Father and Jesus, they are still in the business of showing humanity compassion. They just want to do it through you now, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul in Colossians 3 verse 12 says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You see, part of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Christ is that you actually follow Christ. You do what Jesus did. I mean, the whole goal of the Christian life, according to Romans 8, is that you and I would be conformed into the image of the Son. In other words, the goal of the Christian life is that you and I would more and more look like and act like and reflect 
the Jesus whom we worship. That we would become Christ-like. That our words and our actions and our motivations would again look more and more like our Savior and less and less like our world. And one major area in which we uh, should be reflecting Jesus is in this area of compassion. And so if that's true, if that's what we've been called to, then how do we do it? Well, I think one of the ways that we begin to show compassion to hurting people is to do what Jesus did. Again, if we look back at verse 13, it says this, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. You see, I think compassion starts with us seeing people. It starts with us looking at others. You see, if you just scan the Gospels and study compassion in Jesus' life, what you see is that it starts with seeing. It starts with looking. That's why it says in Matthew chapter 19, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, love and compassion start with looking. They start with noticing and seeing the needs of others. I can't help, I feel like I keep looking at you, Doug, and, and as I think about you, and as I think about when Doug first went to Ukraine and he saw all of these orphaned kids on the streets, it started with him looking and seeing. And God began to stir his heart, to build compassion in his heart, and so he comes home and he starts a, a ministry to, to, to support and to reach orphans. But it started with him looking and noticing. He could have gone on that mission trip and just, uh, bl- just ignored the needs that he saw, but he couldn't do that. He saw them, and Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit now, has built this ministry to reach and to care for orphans. And God's calling all of us to do that. But I'm going to be honest with you. This is extremely difficult in the day and age in which we live in. We live in a culture right now that is designed and geared toward people looking at themselves instead of looking at others. I mean, literally, if you walk into any store or into any college campus, or even if you're on the elevator at work, what you're going to see is this. Right? Or at the very least, they're going to have headphones in, which is basically like, don't talk to me. I'm in my own little world right here. You see, our culture tells us that everything is about you. It's about your preferences, your comfort, your needs. And yet the way of Jesus is the exact opposite of that. Because Jesus was full of compassion, he gave up his preferences. He gave up his comfort. He ignored his needs in order to love someone else. I mean, how many of you remember the story of John 4 with the woman at the well? Right? That's a very familiar story. Jesus is, is, is on a long journey, and, and they get to Samaria, and he's very tired and needs to take a break. And it says there that they're basically hungry. And so he sends the disciples on into the city to get food while he takes a little rest. But while he's there, a Samaritan woman shows up and Jesus begins to minister to her. He begins to show her compassion. And then it says that the disciples show back up and they're really like thrown off by this whole thing. You know, the fact that Jesus is talking to a woman, number one, but then the fact that it's a Samaritan, it's just like, whoa, what's going on? And at some point they're even like, Jesus, Rabbi, eat. You remember what he says? He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And that really confuses them. They're like, hey, who brought Jesus food? Did he, you know, order a pizza or Uber Eats or something like that? He's like, no, my my food is to do the will of my Father and to accomplish his work. 
You see, again, Jesus' compassion for humanity and his desire to please his father, to do his father's work, trumped and overrode his desire for comfort and for a life of ease. No, in fact, his compassion led to him getting involved with some pretty rough people. Some people, as we like to say in the church world, who are EGRs. You know, extra grace required type people. If you've not heard that, you might be one of those people. Um, uh, It's a pretty common phrase. Um, And yet what it looks like to follow Christ, what it looks like for us to get involved with people, is it it requires us getting our eyes off of ourselves. It requires us getting our eyes off of our stupid phones. And it requires that we look at people, that we begin to take notice, that we, 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 we look at their facial expressions, we look them in the eyes, that we begin to see the pain, the hurt that's there. And I think, it's, you know, I think one of the best ways you and I can love people in, in 21st century America is by looking at them, by noticing them, and then listening. I mean, we, you know, there, there is people in poverty in our nation, absolutely. And we can show compassion to them through uh, meeting their physical needs. But more than anything in America right now is there are a lot of broken people who are emotionally destroyed. And if you would just slow down, if you would stop living a hurried life, again, if you would put down your phone, if you would stop thinking about yourself and begin to just ask questions and let somebody talk, you would be showing them compassion in a way that I guarantee they're not getting anywhere else. And so that's one of the ways that I think you and I can begin to love people and begin to model Christ to them. And as we do this, the amazing thing about it is that we don't have to do it in our own strength. You see, I think when I think about this, I get overwhelmed. I'm like, I can't do this. I am selfish. But I don't have to do this. Nick Carruthers doesn't have to do this. The Holy Spirit longs to do this through me and through you. You see, as we submit our lives to God, as we seek to listen to the Spirit's voice, you and I think we'll have more and more opportunities to love and to show people compassion in Jesus' name. You see, the Holy Spirit, I believe, longs to live a repeat performance of Jesus' life through you. And so let's close now and ask him to help us do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories that, again, just show us the, the show us your character, Lord. God, that show us that when the Lord Jesus was walking on this earth and he saw a woman in pain, he saw someone whose life was completely devastated through tragedy. He was so moved he couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself. He had to go and do something about it. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts the compassion of Christ? God, would you help your church to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to a hurting world? Holy Spirit, would you help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and our own needs and our own preferences, and would you help us to start to notice people? Lord, would you help us to just slow down to stop living such rushed and hurried lives where we, we walk by people who are in need of compassion every day, but we don't notice them because we're too busy, we're too occupied. Father, would you teach us what it looks like to, 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 do, to live the way of Christ? Lord, we are your 
disciples, would you help us to show the world that through love and compassion? God, would you help us to, uh, I think the most compassionate thing we could do is to tell others about you. Would you help us to do that, Holy Spirit? Would you help us to share the love of Christ, the, the fact that the most compassionate act Jesus ever did was giving himself on the cross? Lord, would you help us to tell others about that? to show them the compassion of Jesus by telling him the good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.